We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. And welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are continuing our memorable mentors series and talking about Henry Stuart Hazlitt. Ron, how you doing? I'm great, Ed. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Well, congratulations on being named to the um, 100 most influential people in accounting for the, what, 95th year or something like that? No, I don't know. I, um, but hey, congratulations to you as well. Yeah, three three years this, for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a still a youngin'. Yeah, I'm still a youngin' <laughs> on the list. Um, and uh, we got some other sage people up there, too. Yes, Jennifer Warwa, of course. Uh, yep. She's been on a number of years as well. I don't know what her count is up to, but I think it's more than three. And right. then... And then, we, and then, then our our new acquisition person uh, that would be Taylor McDonald, who is at now Sage Intact, and he's been on. He's got to be on over ten years. I don't know if it has been consecutively, but I know he's been on before. Right, right. And and it's interesting because Taylor, of course, is the reason you and I got together in the first place. <laughs> yes, he is. He's he's like like many things. He's responsible for this. And yeah. I like to remind him of that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, listen, I don't know if you saw it, but the in the actual report, sometimes they, uh, you know, they make everybody answer three or four questions every oh, year. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I actually, I, I so full confession. All I did, Ron, was I looked at it and I read the little blurb about me, and then the little blurb about you. So. <laughs> 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 well, I, I love how they describe you. Maybe we'll read that, but I wanted to read to you because if you haven't seen this, they um, the number one question is, what's the number one issue facing the profession? Oh, right, and they, right, right. And they give some quotes, and I don't know, it's roughly half the list of, of the top 100, and you're in there, and you say it continues to be the use of the timesheet, mm. not only for pricing, but for evaluating people. Sadly, the timesheet is not only substandard as a pricing model, but it but is immoral and unethical. It has caused psychological <laughs> harm to many. I read that. I said, yes. That's awesome. <laughs> I never even had the guts to say that. <laughs> you know, but it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. true. It absolutely is. I totally agree. And and I love how they uh, they described you. They said, uh, "Think of class as one of accounting's philosophers and residents, asking pointed questions and applying his restless intellect to a wide range of issues, even as he joins fellow philosopher and radio co-host Ron Baker in aiming to eliminate both outdated practices like the billable hour and the outdated thinking that supports them." So yeah, good stuff. Well, how about that as a quote, though? Them saying the outdated uh, practices of the timesheet and the or the billable hour. How about that? Yeah, no, they're they're really good about that. And by the way, they spelled timesheet as two separate words. Oh, see, all right. Well, <laughs> Dan Hood, shame on you because you really need to. It's one word it's for an efficiency thing. So we yeah. got. 
<laughs> and a language thing. And uh, yeah, and they did say about me, they say every year more accountants buy, buy like this, buy into Baker's message about the need to switch to value pricing. And that means more and more are ready to hear his larger message about innovation, modernization, and most important transformation. So yeah, not bad. Yeah. Well, so congr- all right. Yeah, let's listen. that. Thanks. Okay, let, enough back padding. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> well, if we don't do it, nobody else will. That's true. That's true. My, you know, our moms maybe. <laughs> and we've had, and there's also some other folks up here that have been on the show. They're Gary Boomer and uh, Jim Boomer made the list, and Mark Coisiel, he's been on. So there's there's a Greg Lafollette's got to be on the list still, right? Uh, Greg Lafollette is made it. That's right. Another yeah. guest and. Yeah. Uh, I, I might be leaving somebody out, but um, those are the ones that come off top top of my head. So, good stuff. Good, good stuff. All right. All right. Ready to dig into Henry Stewart Hazlitt? Bet. And I like All this right. guy, Ed. I'd like him too. And I have to say, this is the 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 fifth book in the series from our friends at the Foundation for Economic Education on the essential whomever, right? And I have to say, I'm glad we did them in chronological order. That was your suggestion, too, by the way, to do them as such. And and I'm glad we did, because this one really synthesized a lot of the thinking, right? I mean, which makes sense, of course, because he's he he is standing on the shoulders of the giants of the previous generations that came before him, all of whom we've dealt with, right? Right. So it just makes a, a lot of sense. But I, and I think for two reasons. One, his his uh, his writing style is clearly much more contemporary. Although, as we talked about it, Bastiat, for being written in the 1700s, was extraordinarily accessible, right? Yes. But this guy just has a knack for distilling stuff down in in plain language that you do not have to be an economist to have to to, to plow through. Yeah, agree. I I encountered him Ed, through his book. I'm sure you did too. Economics in one lesson, correct? Which I read. I don't know how many years ago, um, but it and it always just stuck in my mind. This is just a fantastic book. Uh, but he's written some. What is it? Twenty others or so. And I and I dived into some of them. A, a couple of them, I believe, are specific refutations of Keynesian economics. You know, demand side economics. There's one he's read, and I don't have the title in front of me, but it's it, or wrote that is about um, f- uh, philosophy, ethics, the ethics of you know free markets, basically, and it's a very strong argument for utilitarianism, mm. which I which I found actually quite compelling, even though I don't consider myself you know a full fledged utilitarian. Um, if I had to argue for it, this I would use his book as the argument. I mean, he made some really, really interesting arguments that I'd never thought of before. So he was quite a thinker. Yeah, really, really was. And yeah, born in Philadelphia and then raised in Brooklyn. That's just like my dad, Ron. Wow. My dad was born in Philadelphia and, and raised in Brooklyn. So, so I was a little, a little plus there for, for, for him. But in relative poverty, I did not realize that. And because his, his, his dad passed away when he was an infant. Uh, and he attended City College in in New York, which I I also think that uh, didn't Rothbard go there? I think Rothbard went there as well. Yes, I I, I think that's right. And 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 oddly enough, he was a chief editorial writer for the New York Times, mm-hmm. which I think it'd be safe to say wouldn't happen again today. Uh, <laughs> and he also wrote weekly for Newsweek, as as did a lot of economic thinkers. Paul Samuelson had a column that I think mm-hmm. alternated with Milton Friedman. In, in Newsweek, um, you know, trying to spread their message to a, to a wider audience. So, and of course, he was uh, 
founding board member of the Foundation for Economic Education. So, right. Uh, and he uh, obviously wrote a lot for the free man, and that that was their um, monthly publication uh, that is no longer in print. I, it's all online. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, I well, I had access to it in in print for many many years. It was my favorite, one of my favorite all time publications. I mean, it was chock full of economics in very plain language. I mean, it taught me a ton, and um, he wrote a lot of essays in there that some of these essays from the book are 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 from. Right. Yep. Yeah. No. And that there's, there's some really good stuff. And w- was he he was Mount Pelerin too, or at, but not a, an original member? I think. Yes, uh, Leonard Reed actually chaired a, a conference in uh, what is it, Vive, Switzerland? Is it Vive? Vive right, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1947, where he invited 43 libertarian writers, most of whom were economists, you know, Friedman and Hayek and Mises, and that turned into um, the Mount Pelerin Society. All right. I guess it was the next meeting or something in Vermont. Isn't that where Mount Pelerin is or something? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yep. but yeah, well, that, that was Leonard Reed who we did that, last who time. did that. Right. Right. Yeah. And here's, and here's, um, here, here, here's the thing that one of the things that jumped out at me in the, in the research just about, uh, Leonard Reed, I'm sorry, uh, Hazlitt that I did, because this, this is the first time I can almost ever recall reading something like this. Ayn Rand called his book, uh, a, a magnificent job of theoretical exposition. I don't think I ever heard her pay a compliment to anyone. That's <laughs> <laughs> Unless it was Aristotle, or herself. right as Aristotle and Aquinas, maybe or herself. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow, that is interesting. It's very interesting. So, well, let, let's let's talk a little bit about the work here. We have a few minutes, and and let's just take the 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 first essay, which is, I believe, the opening from the Economics in One Lesson. Right. Right. And what I what I love about this, let's just let's just jump to what the lesson is. So it's it's not only economics in one lesson, it's it's economics in one sentence. Yeah. And to distill it down to this. And this this is the sentence. The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy semicolon. So there is a second thought here. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group. But for all groups, yeah, perfect. It is perfect. It, it, it's a great, um, you know, explanation of uh, Bastiat's seen and unseen. Mm-hmm. Yep, and 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 how you can't you can't take into account just the, the just those shorter term effects, which is what almost every economist does today. It's bizarre; like they just completely ignore this very basic point. Yep, so true. And I love how he starts, Ed, by saying that economics is haunted by more fallacies than any other study known to men. Mm-hmm. Man. And, and you know, it's, it's really true. And, and he says that not in physics, mathematics, or medicine do, do we have self-interested people, you know, kind of tampering with the evidence, <laughs> right? That's, it, um, it, it's really hard to, to put, um, you know, to get... Um, uh, rational people or, or you know act human actors into a scientific model like physics they don't act like billiard balls on a on a table right right 
and and I, I really do enjoy how he he just you know c- cuts right to the chase on things and and he de- then then ca- contradicts or I'm sorry uh, counterbalances the good economist from the bad economist in this whole long recitation but I'm just going to sum it up in the in the the the, the last sentence I believe of a r- fairly long paragraph and section he said it is, it is sadly remarked to that bad econ- economists present their errors to the public far better than good economists present their truths. Yes, and how, boy, how true is that? Yep. I, you, when you said that economics is haunted by more fallacies than any other study, it made me think of Thomas Sowell, who said, you know, it's not the economic theories that are complicated. It's the fallacies that, <laughs> right. that get complicated, and that is so true. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and there, and so so many half troops. I, I will say this, one, and, and in, in reading this book, it just helped me reflect on getting interested in 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 economics as a as an amateur for these past you know 10 or so years maybe longer since since you and I have have known each other and how it has just made me a better overall thinker in terms of logical progression that's that's the one thing i really love about talking about this stuff is that it it also makes you a better thinker in so many other areas too it it does cuz it's a toolbox it's it's a it like i think david friedman says this or stephen landsberg but economics is a way of thinking Mm-hmm. about issues or problems you know it's it's not a bunch of prescribed notions it's it's really a thought process right right yeah, to- totally agree with that and and economics in one lesson by the way was published in 1952 and of course i and i don't know if you ever did a second edition i know various you know uh, reprints have come out but i don't know if he ever updated it but so it, it's it's really held the test of time i believe i saw something on this in the research and that there yeah, he 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 updated it and then added some chapters in a subsequent edition okay okay so, so folks yeah. so i know i linked to the latest up on amazon but uh make sure that you get the latest if uh <laughs> if you do get the book as a result of the show today yeah, no, no good stuff. Well, Ron, look, we're already up on a break here. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, just a quick reminder to people, go to thesoulofenterprise.com slash Verisage. There is still room available at the Verisage event. We'd love to see some of you out there. Uh, we end, So thesoulofenterprise.com slash Verisage. Also, just if you want to e- email Ron or me, just send an email to asktsoe at verisage.com, and that'll go immediately to both of us. Please keep those emails coming, as well as the reviews on Amazon and on iTunes. We're really, truly appreciative of everything that, that our audience does for us. So uh, if you could take a moment and just uh, go and do that as well. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. 
you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back here on The Soul of Enterprise and we're talking about The Essential Henry Hazlitt, a book that is about by the, the, the FEE, the, the Foundation for Economic uh, Education. Um, Ron, you back with us? I thought you kind of left for a second. No, 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 I'm here. I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so chapter two, Ed, is the early history of FEE, and this was pretty short. It was just kind of interesting. I didn't realize that Leonard Reed was the general manager of the L.A. Chamber of Commerce. Um, when right. he met when he met uh, Henry Hazlitt, but uh, anyway, it was Leonard Reed, obviously, who opened up Fee in uh, Irvington in, in uh, March of 1946. But they published various publications in the early days. This was before the Freeman, and one of the books they published was a little pamphlet was called Roofs or Ceilings by Melton Friedman and George Stigler. It was all about rent control. Mm. And then the next one they published was Plan Chaos which I've read. It was by Ludwig von Mises. It was all about, you know, the central planning problem, the calculation problem of socialism without, you know, an economy without prices. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Hazlitt, and I thought this was the most interesting thing, he said, these pamphlets, even though they got a lot of reprints and a lot of reads, they had no direct effect on legislation, especially in rent control. (laughs) Rent control was sweeping the country in post-World War II. Um, But he makes the point that, you know, even Adam Smith's book took a long, long time to directly affect, uh, you know, affect legislation, like repealing, you know, protectionist tariffs and things like that. Right. So, you know, even though these things take a long time, you know, good ideas, they can't hang around and it just takes a while for them to be implemented. Yep. Nope. Totally. Totally good stuff. So. Well, let, let's move on to the third essay because I think the third essay is is the the one of all of these that I I really uh, enjoyed the most. And my comments at the beginning, talking about his plain language and ability to to uh, explain very complex issues uh, well, including the subjective theory of value and and the Marxist labor theory of value too, are come out in this chapter. Right. Agreed. Right, yeah. and and I'm just going to read a, a brief segment here, and like the the it's called, talking about Carl Menger, one of the founders. Right, M- Menger insists throughout his work that value is essentially subjective, and therefore economics must not be in the main sub main in the subject in, in main. I'm sorry, in the main a subjective science. Uh, goods have no inherent value in themselves. 
this this is exactly what we say, Ron. This it's amazing. <laughs> this is what we talk about. Well, this is where yeah. I learned it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, they, they are valued because they help satisfy some human want or need. A given quantity or unit of a certain good will satisfy man's man's most intense desire. He may also want a second or third or fourth increment, but each in- increment after it is consumed, his desire or need for it further uh, may may be less intense and may finally until he comes completely satisfied. And this is where we usually interject like your fifth slice of pizza or fifth shot of tequila. Either way. (laughs) Either way. Yeah. And and he does point out that that Carl Menger is one of the developers of this marginal utility along with Stanley Jevons and and Leon Walrus. Um, Although I don't think he mentioned Walrus, but there were three economists who did come up with this around the same time and independently of one another. Mm -hmm. Marginalist revolution. Um, and then, of course, he talks about how Menger made the distinction between goods of the first order, which were consumption goods, like mm-hmm. I don't pick up pick my tobacco, and then goods of the second order were all the machinery, crops, labor that went into making tobacco. So, what mm-hmm. gave that those items value was was the first order good, the consumption good, tobacco. It supported mm-hmm. everything else. So, if we ever you know, get rid of tobacco or don't or outlaw it or or people just stop smoking, all those second order goods, the machinery, the crops, the land, the labor will have to switch to making something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. And even just the, from an ingredient perspective, right? Bread is valued because it meets a consumption need. Flour is valued because it's made bread. Wheat is valued because it makes flour. Uh, plows, seeds, land and labor are valued because they are necessary to produce wheat and so on. And the, here's the thing that 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 caught me, Ron. Is this a, a flipping of Marx or an inversion of Marx? And does it even matter? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's, it, it, did it turn it it's turn itself around or did it turn it, turn it uh, inside out is almost what happened. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird because Marx labor theory value was so just so wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really hard to diagnose it. But the other thing that I really like that he says in here, Ed, he says, what a good has cost cannot determine its value, but what it what a good will cost determines how much of it will get made. Yep. Now, now that's a really interesting point that gets lost in the whole cost accounting debate is, you know, basically you gotta know your future costs. The past costs don't <laughs> don't matter. It's what's it gonna cost in the future, you know, at the margin that matters. And yep. that's where cost accounting it just has no model for that. I start. I'm starting to see more and more light bulbs go on, Ron. When I present like the two theories, you know, we have that the, the logical progression, right? Cost yields price yields value, and then we flip it and we say no, it's value yields yields price yields cost. And the the phrase that I've been using, I think you've heard me say it, is that prices justify the future expenditure of cost. Right. And I think that's where people start. They, they're like, they start to go, oh. If they haven't questioned it already, that's where they'll question it. They're like, okay, that seems starts to make sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And 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 you know, hence you need to know the costs ahead of time mm-hmm. <laughs> before you build the thing or make right. the thing or provide the service or, or whatever. The other thing he says in here that I that I thought was really good is is money is not a measure of value. You know, we always talk about the money illusion on this show and how it kind of distorts the idea of value because you know, as we love to say, when you buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks for four bucks, 
you're only booking the $4 transaction, but you only bought it because it was worth more than $4. Right. So let's say it was worth 5 because you were hung over and you really need your caffeine fix. Where's that extra buck go? Well, the money is only a measure of the price. It's not a, mon- it's not a measure of the value. Correct. So it doesn't hit our GDP statistics. It just kind of gets lost. You know, that whole consumer surplus or what we call the, the customer profit just kind of evaporates. And yet it's an enormous part of our economy. Perhaps the biggest part, if you really, if you, if you rolled it out there, right? It's a bit bigger, bigger than anything. Yeah, people, people really struggle, struggle with that, that notion. Uh, and, and let me, let me, I think it's happening right here in Dallas, about a mile from me, less than a mile from me. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's if this has happened to you yet in California, Ron, but we have we now have gas lines yes, here in Texas. I, I've seen that, Ed. <laughs> we have gas lines here in Texas. This is there is no shortage. There is no mm-hmm. shortage. <laughs> Just people are freaking out because of maybe it's late. You think it's Labor Day part of it? Mm-hmm. Get, you know, getting away for the weekend or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I, it's not that. I, and somebody brought this up on Facebook. They, they, they're like, and I, I think this is true. I've got to vet this. But there are, you know, there are laws in most states about how much the price of gasoline can increase any one mm-hmm. week. And it, right, right, right. Yeah, I think it's something like ten percent. Like they can't raise the price ten any greater than ten percent of what it was the week before that date. Yep. Right. Well, th- th- and that to me, that's the problem. All, if these places had the ability to raise price, it's real, real easy. Just yep. raise it to five dollars temporarily. Yep, the lines disappear. Yep, absolutely. I yeah. mean, if if you need any basic illustration of of this this notion of of, of wage and wage and, and cost controls, if that's true, and I want to say it is, I mean, I, the the source that I have is fairly reliable on that. If that's true, that's just a a, a great example of of what what Hazlitt's talking about here in 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 government intervention into the this this price system, you know, and this is where it comes back to what what our friend. Uh, George Gilder has now been saying, and that is this notion that the price system is mostly about an information system, not an incentive system. Yep, yep. And and when you when you control prices like that, all you're doing is giving people incentive to waste the resource even more. <laughs> so it's just it, I know it's just so the whole anti-gouging set of laws too after natural disasters like this Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. Just they're so distortive, and they've got really pernicious effects. It's that unseen yep. that that Hazlitt's talking about the the secondary effects that, and the tertiary effects on all parties, not just the groups you know that you can see visibly. the The other thing I liked what he said about this. He said after these three economists that he cites, you know, the three Austrian economists, Menger, von Wieser, and and Baum Bauwerk, um, after they passed away. He said <laughs> economics went into this dark period where it start, started to focus on the mathematics of general equilibrium. Yeah. And, it, you know, <laughs> Austrians just reject this whole idea of, of equilibrium. I mean, let's face it, balances for tires and ballerinas. Uh, it's not for right. dynamic capitalist free market societies. I mean, they're, they're, they're dynamic disequilibrium, if anything, mm-hmm. um, because Austrians love to speak about the market process, not a static market equilibrium. And, and I thought that was a really good point and, and very true. Yep. Well, and and like you said, money as being a measure measure of value, and that goes goes back, of course, to to Gilder as well. That money's got to be the measuring stick, right? It's the measuring stick. Yep. 
and no. it's only of price. It can only show what a uh, you know a transaction was consummated at at a particular price. It it it's kind of silent with respect to value. Right. Yep. Good so stuff. I know we've I know we've only got a couple minutes, Ed, but when we go to the fourth chapter, he's talking about the problem of poverty, which is from an essay he wrote in the Free Man from uh, June 1971. What what struck you about this this chapter? The problem of poverty, um, how absolutely prescient it was for what's happening today. I mean, it, it, I don't know when he wrote that. I didn't didn't look uh, as to when that seventy one. Yep. Okay, <laughs> like print it today. Yep, <laughs> it's just as relevant. <laughs> just just print it today, and and the whole notion of envy and all of the things that are happening there. It's really it it's it, it's it's really well done. So it, we'll, it really is. I love how he started it. The history of poverty is almost the history of mankind. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know how true is that? When you look at that hockey stick graph that that economists love to draw, like Deirdre McClowski, mm-hmm. that eight, that eight hundred, you know, when the stick just goes crazy. Um, he talked about uh, the Encyclope- Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. uh, identified 31, 31 major famines from ancient times to nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm. And you know this; <laughs> the, these were devastating, absolutely devastating famines with tons of death. Um, of course, this led to you know Robert Thomas Robert Mar, uh, Robert Malthus talking about the the effect of population on food consumption and food production. You know, he thought that the population was going to grow much faster than our ability to feed it. Right. And uh, it, Hazlitt makes one mistake in this chapter. He says Thomas Carlyle, who was kind of a journalist at the time because of what Malthus's theory said about food outstripping or, or population outstripping uh, food, uh, he said, well, economics is obviously the, the study. It's a dismal science. Dismal science, right. And, yep. and that's not why Carlyle called it the dismal science. The reason wasn't uh-huh. it had nothing to do with Malthus. It had everything to do with the fact that the economists of their day, like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, every single one of them to a person was anti-slavery. And Carlyle was a racist. And huh. that's why he called it the dismal science, because they were pro-abolition. Really fascinating. Yep. There's a whole book on this <laughs> that is wow. really, really, really interesting. But, um, yeah, more to say about this chapter that I thought was really interesting. But I know we're up against a break. And, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. And please check out our live event happening in uh, Allen, Texas. In November, you can find that on our events or calendar tab at the soul of And now we want to hear from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Memorable Mentors with Henry Hazlitt. And Ed, one more thing about this chapter, The Problem of Poverty. He talks about... um, you know, Malthus in his essay on the principles of population, he said he's he's positing these theories that, that population is going to outstrip our ability to feed ourselves just at the time that the Industrial Revolution was taking off and falsified all yeah. of its theories. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he gives the population stats of England and Wales, and this was interesting. In 1700, it was five and a half million people. And by 1831, it was 14 million people. And there was a continuous fall in the death rate. And not because of an increase in the birth rate, but because, you know, we were, we were saving people and they were living longer. Um, and then he points out that famine since the end of the 18th century did not fall on a single country in the industrialized Western world. Unbelievable. And, and yeah. that's amazing. He does say there could be a sole exception, the Ireland potato famine. But he said, but the Industrial Revolution at that point, which is mid-19th century, had barely touched Ireland. No, so it really yeah. wasn't a developed Western industrialized country at that point. So, and, and, you know, I know that's been updated and I wish I had it in front of me, but a, a, a famine hasn't happened um, since, I, you know, a good 50, 60 years that wasn't caused by the government. Yeah. Yeah, including the the one the most recent one in Somalia. Yeah. Oh, yep, yeah, some crazy stuff there. Yeah, yep. Uh, the well, interesting the potato famine thing. I know a lot about that, being Irish and having a lot of history behind that. One of my favorite bands is named Black Forty Seven, and named after the the potato famine in eighteen forty seven. <laughs> and yes, I can tell you in my 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 readings of Irish history, I, I, Ireland was was very 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 much a backwater <laughs> at that <laughs> point. It was, yeah, not a lot going on there. So that's good. Hey, Rob, I love, how, we... I love how those band names get named. You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. U two, U two is is or UB forty is the unemployment benefit form in the UK. Yeah, and that's the band's <laughs> name, UB forty. Nice. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Hey, Ron, before we move on to, to Hazlitt, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little and do do something that would normally end up in the Free Rider Friday stack. Okay. Just just because it's, it, it's I think, in, in, in alignment with what we're talking about specifically today, it's from Fee's website, fee.org, and I believe it has a publication date of yesterday. Yeah, uh, Thursday, August 31st, and this is by Mark Perry, who I know you're a big fan of. Yeah. Uh, Twelve Venn diagrams that show the intellectual inconsistency. It says of the left, but honestly, if once you read these, it's not of the left, it's of lots of people. Yeah. Uh, the first one he throws out, of course, is is uh, and and in each of these diagrams, it's, you know, everybody knows a Venn diagram is two circles that come together, and in this case, these are Venn diagrams that have huge amounts of overlap in them, right? Really, a lot of overlap. So the, the and he's pointing out that these are intellectual inconsistencies across the board. Uh, first one, just to give the the example, is those who preach and lecture incessantly. To Americans about reducing the their their energy consumption and carbon footprint to stop global warming, right? That's that's one circle, and then the other circle is those who show no urgency to reduce their own carbon footprint and, in fact, consume 21 times more electricity than the average U.S. household, <laughs> right? And he says that there's a huge overlap in there, and then there's a big picture of our friend Al Gore, right, Gore, in, sure. <laughs> in the middle. But but all of these, and I'm not going to go through all of them. Are great examples of what what Hazlitt is pointing out is the the this the intellectual inconsistency here is in not thinking through an economic policy either in terms of the the length of time in which you examine it or the the groups right the, the effective or, or looking yeah. the, the the effect the, the effect over over all groups rather than just one group cuz cuz here's the thing you and I w- would absolutely not dispute the fact that raising the minimum wage will get some people a very select few more money though that, that mm. will, it will it will absolutely will increase the wages of x number of person without question right but over the long haul, it it has a, a, a detrimental effect, right? And the one that they that they present in this uh, that or that Perry presents here, and I'm just going to read this one to you. So, uh, in, th- in this one, he is slamming progressives, although I don't think it's just progressives, but progressives who understand that a large tax on soda and sugary drinks will lead to a large increase in the price of those beverages and a significant reduction on the consumption of those beverages, right? And then the mm-hmm. other one is. Progressives who fail to understand that the minimum wage hike will lead to a large increase in the cost of hiring unskilled workers and have a significant reduction in the quantity demanded by those workers, right? And then the, in the middle of there, he has the Seattle uh, Seattle City Council. <laughs> yeah. It's always amazed me how, how the left thinks that progressive, you know, the syntaxes work, and they do. But mm-hmm. when they can't, can't apply the exact same logic to the minimum wage. Right, right. And... Uh, one more, one last one that I want to want to share because I think I, I've seen this other places and it's other another topic that you and I have talked about. And uh, this is the the two groups here are those who claim that businesses are so obsessed with making money that they will never look an opportunity to cut labor costs so that they can increase their profits. Right? Mm-hmm. We know that group of people. And then the other group he says those who claim that women are paid twenty percent less than men doing the same job uh, due to discrimination, not realizing that this means greedy businesses are overlooking the obvious opportunity to cut labor costs by twenty percent by hiring only women. 
Yep, exactly. Exactly. That's so, I know that's something that soul has just written so eloquently about over the years, but uh, that's great. Ed. I hadn't seen that. I, I hadn't read that article, so I'll, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes and take a look at that. That sounds great. Yeah, good stuff. All right, let's go. Let's back to Hazlitt. <laughs> Sorry. All right, back to Hazlitt. No, no, that's great. Uh, chapter five talks about false remedies for poverty. Again, Ed, written in 1971. Yep. Might as well publish it today. He, the, he starts out, the chief evil is not poverty, it's inequality. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that Deirdre said in a recent interview, or she sparred with somebody, I forget who it was from, some journalist from a leftist magazine. And, and she said, you know, you want to talk about inequality, I want to talk about poverty. <laughs> yep. And yep. so he, so Hazlitt in this chapter is laying out things that we do. Uh, that are supposed remedies for poverty, like land reform, and guess what? A guaranteed income, um, which he says destroys incentives at both ends of the economic scale. And unions and strikes, much like the minimum wage, Ed, unions also raise wages for a select group of people, but they Mm -hmm. also take out jobs for many others. The thing that amazes me that people don't understand about unions is unions, their competition isn't their employer, their competition is other workers. Yes. <laughs> and, yep. you know, this this idea that workers and employers compete is just is, is ridiculous. And he points out in here, and it's a great point that I've, I've uh, forgotten about, but the overtime rules that the Department of Labor and other states, you know, implemented way back uh, were actually implemented to oblige employers to hire additional workers to make mm-hmm. it more expensive, you know, to work the current force over time so you had to hire additional workers and of course that gave the labor union more dues paying members yep and it was this this was a great section this whole this whole thing about these the the, these two counterbalancing things you're right you could you could print it all today and where he he comes and also he talks about the fact that hey listen um uh immigration i'm sorry um uh, in, imports, imports and stuff is just another t- form of technology because he he talks I- at length about how you know the the luddites and how do we how do we you know jettison these technologies and not it's not going to help. <laughs> yep, yep, and that's so true. And he talks about wage and price controls. Yep. Of course, Nixon did, and and they have a history going way back to you know Roman times, um, and then just outright socialism. Um, and he kind of just destroys each one of these arguments. And just again, for a short little essay, uh, it's it's just wonderfully put together. Yeah, he does does a great job of that. And I, I do like he, that definition of outright socialism because I think that's a, a, a key challenge for us today. There's far too many people just saying, "Hey, you know, oh, you're a socialist," and and. I see what people mean when when they say that that you have that that policy that you're talking about is socialist. But there's not many people that I know of who are truly in favor of all-out government ownership of the means of production, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, the very 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 few. Uh, you know, may, may, maybe for medicine, maybe they they want they want a complete you know single payer, complete means of production for for medicine. But I don't know. Too many people who are just just outright socialists who say government should be the the owner have the ownership of everything. Right, I'd say I'd throw schools in there maybe, although there's you know private, yeah, but sure, you know, yeah, it's really hard to privatize the school system, um, you know, according to them. But something I don't agree with. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, chapter six 
and I have to say this is one of my favorite because I'm I'm I love this topic on appeasing envy. And mm. this again was another essay he wrote in the Freeman, which was published in March 1972. So boy, this, these are 40 some odd years old, 45 years old, and they're just you read them and you go, wow, they're just as relevant today. Um, he quotes Justice Holmes in this one. He says, Justice Saw Holmes, that. Said, I have no respect for the passion for equality which seems to me merely idealizing envy. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that um, Michael Novak in his books talks passionately about. He says envy destroys civilizations. And he points uh, to the Roman Empire. Mm, as a, being about envy. Yep. Right. And, and uh, Hazlitt here quotes this uh, author, Helmut Choke who wrote a book, Envy, in 1966, and, and it's a thick tome, and I've got it here. I'm staring at it. It's, it's mm. big, and it's fantastic. And he really gets into, you'd love it, because he really gets into the words, you know, the difference between envy and jealousy and all of this. But what Hazlitt's really saying in this essay is he said, you know, if we redistribute to assuage this envy so we can prevent revolutions, he says, we're actually... We should never try and buy off a revolution because we'll just provoke one. Yes. We'll just get people angrier. And it's yep. a fantastic point. He backs it up with historical examples. Yep. And I think the, the, the quote that I saw in there, and I think this is from the book, did you say uh, shock? Is that yeah. right? Right. Is man's envy is at its most intense where all things are almost equal. Yes. Right. He calls for redistribution the loudest when there is virtually nothing to redistribute. And yep. the, the the thing that that popped into my head when when that that came on when when I read that, but you you must have seen that this uh, this video of the 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 monkeys. Yes, the grapes right? and the right. Yeah, yeah. The one the one monkey gets cucumbers and the other one gets grapes and the other one gets like ticked off. It's not see. It's not that he's not being fed, <laughs> right? It's that he's not being fed the grapes. Right. Right? No, like his buddy. And, and, and how many jokes out of the old USSR dealt around this issue? You know, what, uh, your last dying wish. And the guy says, well, I want my neighbor's goat to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't envy one of the seven deadly sins? I mean, this it has is. a long, long, long history. So, wow, we're, we're up against it again, folks. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Keep those emails coming. You guys are great about writing us, suggesting topics, and giving us articles, and get all sorts of great stuff for you from you. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking on The Soul of Enterprise today about the essential Henry Hazlitt. And Ron, just a shout out, this, 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 this company is not a sponsor of ours, but I, I want to give them a little bit of a plug because the, I use their product and, and especially when we've got any kind of an author or in this case, one of our memorable mentors and, and are using an author, uh, I use this, this product to, to connect up to my Kindle, Kindle called clippings.io. Maybe we should send our producer Robert after these guys to get a sponsorship, but uh, <laughs> It, uh, but I love their stuff. I, it it allows you to take basically your your highlights from your Kindle, which is in two places. One, not only on the Kindle itself, but also on any Kindle app, like if you use it on your phone, and it aggregates them all in one spot. I love it. Yep, and a fantastic little little plug-in for a Chrome only, so you got to be Chrome Chrome browser user. But uh, clippings.io, so just a little throw out there. Uh, the, this is the, let's talk a little bit about chapter seven. And I have to say, Ron, that I took chapter seven to heart. I was, it, made, it made me a little depressed. <laughs> oh boy! The, the, okay. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the 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 chapter is entitled "Planning versus the Free Market." And somewhere around halfway through this this chapter, it, I had this epiphany that where Hazlitt puts in planning, I was going to substitute in my brain. Project management. Oh wow! And <laughs> boy, so yeah. project management always involves compulsion. Yes, there you go. That's exactly, and that's exactly the quote that I that I think struck me. <laughs> project. So the the, the plan. The, let's. I'll read the Hazlitt quote. Planning always involves compulsion. There, this may be disguised in various ways. This is so true. As a project manager, this is what you're doing, right? The government planners the project manager, will, of course, try to persuade people that the plan has to be drawn up for their own good and that only persons who are going to be, to be coerced are those whose plans are, quote, not in the public interest, or in this case, you know, not in the interest of the customer. Right. And I think that this is part of the problem. I really do. And and I've got, I, I need to rethink some of my project management class in, in lieu of, of reading this chapter. Well, you think it's too hierarchical? Way too hierarchical. Yeah, yeah. yeah it'd, be, it'd be like Goss plans five-year plan mm-hmm. in the old Soviet Union. Yeah. It, what I loved about this chapter, Ed, is you know people say, well, if you don't have a central plan, then you've got no plan. And he says, no, no. The question is, whose plan mm, yeah. is going to be is going to be in, and you know, in a free market, everybody makes their own plan. Or gets together voluntarily, like in a corporation or some other organization, and implements a plan. It's not that you don't have a plan in the free market; it's mm-hmm. that you've got lots of them. Yep. 
rather than just one big one. So yeah, I really, it was a really interesting chapter. And uh, chapter eight, he says, uh, is titled, Can We Keep Free Enterprise? And what I loved about this one, Ed, is he just freely admits there's no defense of capitalism that will ever be generally accepted. And he gives five main impulses inherent in human nature for why this is true. You know, we joke all the time, nobody marches on the street uh, for capitalism, right. right? You see Shea Guevara t-shirts, but you'll never see a Margaret Thatcher or Melton Friedman t-shirt or Mises or something, Mises. Um, but the five main impulses inherent in human nature uh, that will keep people from accepting capitalism from Hazlitt are, one, genuine compassion. Mm-hmm. So people see something like Hurricane Harvey and, you know, they want they want to help. They want the government to help and all of that. Uh, they're impatient for a cure. When we see a problem, we want it solved. Mm-hmm. Envy. Yep. Envy, which Hazlitt says has kept the graduated income tax around for probably longer than it, it should be. Um, the propensity to think only of the intended or immediate results and overlooking, again, the secondary results and long-term results, as we've talked about. And the propensity to compare any actual state of affairs and its inevitable defects with some hypothetical ideal. In other words, comparing what we have now to utopia that Correct. doesn't exist. And, you know, those five are brilliant. They are brilliant. And go ahead. They're, human, they're, just, they're human nature. Yep. They're timeless. They're timeless. And, and, and what I think about as you're going through them is how they re- manifest themselves in business today. And, you know, bringing this back down to the individual business level and, you know, with, it, of course, the show, show is the soul of enterprise. And, yes, we talk about these big ideas, but we always want to try to be on the lookout for how to bring them down into your individual businesses. And I think all of these are, are relevant, but four and five is – it, I, I, I think that's ubiquitous in, in management thinking today, right? The propensity Absolutely. to think of only in the immediate result, uh, whether it's a, a government's proposed solutions or not, is just looking at the short term. Of course, our friend uh, Nick, Nicola, Nick, Nicholas Nassim Taleb on on uh, on uh, Russ Roberts show the other day, you know, was 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 talking about how the fact that the that you know the the, the best system is one in which short term decision decisions have long term consequences, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and or and and they are reflected on that individual, right? And management's propensity when confronted with a new idea to to hold it up against a utopian standard mm-hmm. rather than what are you doing now and what right. you're doing now. So, I mean, I think of that. This comes back to the timesheet or the annual performance appraisal. No, our replacements for the annual performance per- appraisal aren't perfect, but they're a heck of a lot better than what you're doing now. There is no perfect system for it. Right. But right. boy, people don't want to give that up. I uh, just love that. And Ed, the final chapter, I know we've only got a couple minutes, but the final chapter is the lesson restated. And in here, he's quoting William Graham Summers' famous essay in 1883, The Forgotten Man. Mm-hmm. And the great line in there is, you know, what A and B and C shall do for X. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's something Melton Friedman used all the time, that line, government's kind of, that's what they do, right? Sit around and think about what A and B and C should do for, for X. And, mm-hmm. and who gets lost is C, you know, the forgotten man. Amity Shales wrote a great book about this, The Forgotten Man, uh, and it's an it's a economic study of the Great Depression. Um, 
and it's I'll put the, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes because it's really good. But he makes the point in here that the forces of self-interest are always greater than the forces of altruism. And I think it's because our sphere of, of, of uh, altruism is smaller. It's, it's, you know, our private relationships, our family and our social institutions, churches that we're members of or whatever. But you know what? When you think about this, when you buy something, you're interacting with pe- more people than you'll ever be able to meet. Mm-hmm. You know, when you buy an iPhone, how many people made that, re- you know, how many people did it take to make that iPhone a reality? Oh, yep. And, and so we have to rely on self-interest for market transactions, but altruism in these other institutions like civil society and things like that. So just, folks, a great book, Henry Hazlitt. You can get it for free, downloadable. We'll put the link up on the show notes. Ed, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, healing leadership. Fantastic. I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 